0: You're listening to an Airwave Media Podcast. Say goodbye.
1: Two rival steamboats compete on the same river. A boy toils in a furniture factory. A man feeds his chickens. A restaurant serves liquor. A longshoreman is injured on the job. A merchant insures his vessel for a trip to the Far East. A dam is crushed, and a river once again flows. These seemingly mundane events occurring at different times in U.S. history all played some role in the recent US Supreme Court decision on health care reform. It was quite a crowded courtroom as the Supreme Court of the United States met in 1797. Most of the members of the House of Representatives were in attendance at the Supreme Court, as were many dignitaries. The occasion was to hear arguments on a proposed new tax, an assessment on carriages. These would be carriages used to convey passengers. It was an early federal tax on 18th century sports cars to raise money for the central government. Called to speak for the government was Attorney General Charles Lee. Assisting him was the former Treasury Secretary of the United States, today a special lawyer for the government, Alexander Hamilton. Section 8 of the Constitution says Congress has the power to lay and collect taxes, duties, imports, and excises, but it also says no capitation or other direct tax shall be laid unless in proportion to the census or enumeration. When the carriage tax came up in Congress, James Madison had raised constitutional objections. This was a direct tax, and yet the funds were going to the central government and not appropriated to all the citizens, according to population. This was assessment made on anyone who had a carriage. Virginia carriage owners were actually refusing to pay the federal tax on this basis. Now the government wanted to get an answer from the Supreme Court. The court at this time had no chief justice, and two members were absent. At this time, the Supreme Court had to ride circuit, and so were at different parts of the country at different times. Three members were there, though, but the government was told that the court would not provide an advisory opinion of how they would rule. You had to bring a real case in front of it for it to rule. So, the government engineered something. A man named Hilton, who owned a carriage, refused to pay. But the prosecutor was in on it. In fact, the government told Hilton he should lie. Yes, he was allowed to say he owned 125 carriages in order to get that fine over $2,000, which would make it Supreme Court worthy. But, by agreement with the government, if Hilton lost, he would actually only pay $16. It was a trial case. Hamilton, speaking in front of the court, argued that labeling taxes direct or indirect was an exercise in futility. We shall search in vain for any meaning to these terms. One is paid by people ultimately, the other one in the first instance. The Supreme Court, well, really three justices, ruled that the tax was constitutional. In fact, it were three different opinions, but all concurring on the point that it was constitutional for different reasons. Kelton paid his fake fine, and the country went on charging carriage owners. The court had defended taxing power and also, yes, before John Marshall's ruling in Marbury v. Madison, hinted that the court would be the ones who would decide constitutionality. Hilton v. United States was cited in the court's recent decision in the case of National Federation of Independent Businesses versus the Supreme Court decision on President Obama's health care reform legislation. Chief Justice Roberts wrote a decision that was joined in part by the court's liberals, joined in parts by the court's conservatives, and joined in part by the conservatives plus two liberals. The decision surprised many especially those who make a practice of classifying Supreme Court justices using some of those labels. But it was also surprising in where the decision went to. Hilton was not a case many expected to be focused on in this matter. Attention was focused on court in a way that it had not been since a series of abortion-related cases in the 80s and 90s. How would the court rule? Reporters inside the chamber, no phones in those chambers, so they were waiting to bring out the news to the media of the world. The suspense was killing everyone, as it must have been as the court met in Washington, D.C., still in a room off Congress in 1803, to decide the fate of a judge called Marbury. Now, Marbury was named to be a Justice of the Peace of Washington, D.C. by President Adams on the last day of his presidency. Adams signed, his commission was sealed in wax and delivered to the Secretary of State, who happened to be John Marshall. Marshall did not deliver all of them in time, he ran out of time, it was the last day, and it was left to the new incoming Secretary of State, James Madison, to deliver Marbury his commission. Marbury was a Federalist, a supporter of Adams, and Madison wasn't about to do that in the new administration. The victors go to the spoils, though they didn't use that term yet, and he had his own appointments to make. He refused to give Marbury his commission, and Marbury sued, and went all the way to the Supreme Court, which at this point was headed by the Chief Justice of the United States, named by John Adams. None other than John Marshall. Oh no, the incoming Jeffersonians thought. We see what's going on here. You are going to try and disrupt this new administration. We won clearly in an election. We hold the Congress. We hold the presidency. And you're going to make up for your election loss by using the Supreme Court as the last vestige of Federalist Party power. John Marshall, we have to keep in mind, now remembered as a great Chief Justice, would not be thought of that then. He was known at the time for his political skill, continuously re-elected to the legislature of Virginia, he served as a lieutenant in the Virginia militia in Washington's army. He was there in Valley Forge. He was an ambassador who was rebuffed by the French Directory government after the French Revolution, insulted, making him something of a patriotic martyr, a Federalist in Richmond, In a state, Virginia, that was leaning towards Madison and Jefferson's Republican Party. Marshall was still able to win a congressional race in Richmond in a very Republican area. He spent a short time in Congress and then left to become John Adams' Secretary of State and then the Chief Justice. Marshall was a Federalist politician and a crafty one. So the goal of the Jeffersonians now was to delay this ruling and put Marshall and the still Federalist Supreme Court in its place. And they did that by not funding the court and providing no room for it to meet for two years. Finally, in 1803, chastened, the Republicans hoped, they let the court hold session. Once again, the chambers were packed. Republicans were ready to see how Marshall would rule. Rule for Marbury? There would be hell to pay. Rule for Madison? Well, then we know we have this court under our thumb. James Marshall issued the court's opinion in Marbury v. Madison and started to deal with some of the matters of fact. Of course, the president signed the commission. He did it while he was president. So it is Marbury's. It's a technicality that it didn't get delivered. But he added something else. We can't order Madison to give Marbury that commission. Marbury, you're in the wrong court. And why? Because the 1787 Judiciary Act that says we can issue such writs is unconstitutional, thus void. Madison prevails, and I'm sure there were more than a few cheers as people figured out what the decision was. The Republican Party would be in control of the government now and not have this Federalist power base in their midst. But yet, something else had happened. In ruling for the Jefferson administration, Marshall assured a power for the United States Supreme Court in a way Jeffersonians couldn't challenge without disrupting the decision they liked. And that power was The ability to review laws and rule laws constitutional. Judicial review, not a foreign concept and something that many framers probably expected the court to have but wasn't clearly stated in the Constitution. A concept in British law and in some colonial law at the time. President Jefferson was not completely fooled. He had remarked it was dangerous to give so much power to the judges over laws. As those laws were being crafted at the Constitutional Convention of 1787 in Philadelphia, it wasn't all work, though it was a lot of work. It was a little play. And at one point, during a break, some conventioners and many, many residents of Philadelphia rushed to the waterfront to catch a glimpse of a miraculous new invention going up the Delaware River, a 40-foot boat, powered by a steam engine to propel its mounted paddles instead of men. John Fitch built many such vessels but was never able to commercialize it. It was Robert Fulton who perfected this invention and built paddlewheel pine wood models that would go from New York City to Albany in well 30 hours, 5 miles an hour. Seemed quick at the time especially if you don't have to have anyone row black pine smoke coming out of the chimney, sweet ride in 1807. Along with the wealthy Livingston family, Robert Fulton started a prosperous passenger line in New York, and also between Natchez, Mississippi, and New Orleans. In the New York Harbor, however, another steamboat line began showing up, that of Thomas Gibbons. He, backed by his wealthy man, Cornelius Vanderbilt, ran a line from Elizabethtown, New Jersey, to New York City. But wait, Fulton and Livingston had obtained a license from New York to be the exclusive operators of a steamboat passenger line on the Hudson River. Gibbons countered he didn't need a New York license. He had a federal license, and federal law supersedes state law. Who was right? It went to John Marshall's court, and the court ruled that the federal government had a right to regulate interstate commerce. A waterway is a way of going between two states, the most common way at the time. And navigation means commerce. In the course, he defined regulation. Regulation, Marshall said, is the power to prescribe the rule by which commerce is governed. Gibbons v. Ogden is the basis of Commerce Clause interpretation that survives today. Marshall's quote was used to assail the individual mandate in President Obama's health care reform plan by both the Chief Justice John Roberts, and the dissent and sometimes concurring opinion of Scalia, Alito, Thomas, and Kennedy in the part of the decision that they concurred on. That the Congress cannot justify, under its Commerce Clause power, the ability to compel Americans to buy a product, in this case, health insurance. The Commerce Clause, Chief Justice Roberts said, quoting Marshall, presupposes activity to be regulated— a mandate compels individuals to become involved in commerce. Roberts said clearly, individuals do and do not do an infinite number of things. To allow the government to compel them under the Commerce Clause would give no limit to their power. Not surprisingly, Chief Justice Roberts invokes, as does the concurring dissenting judges and the other dissenting incurring judges, the man who used to live in a small yellow house in a rural area of Trotwood, Ohio. Roscoe Filburn did nothing more than grow wheat and eat it. But not only that, he fed some of his wheat to his chickens. And for this, he incurred the wrath of the Secretary of Agriculture, because he did all of this while he sold the maximum amount of his wheat allowed, according to the Agricultural Adjustment Act. He planted 23 acres. He was only allowed 11 acres. And for this, he was fined 49 cents per acre beyond what he was allotted, about 100 bucks. He went to the court on a due process issue, and the court, local court, held for him. Circuit court held for him. Claude Wickard, the Agriculture Secretary, appealed to the Supreme Court of the United States, and in a landmark decision, Judge Robert Jackson held that although Roscoe Filburn was eating or feeding his chickens the wheat, the government had a right to regulate him because he had a substantial effect on the interstate commerce. Not he alone, but he and his fellow farmers. If all the farmers did what Filburn did, that would affect interstate commerce. So not being able to regulate what Philburn does, the federal government would lose its ability to do its work under the Constitution. It should be noted that Philburn was another one of these trial cases, although he did actually commit the violation. He was actually representing many farmers in his area doing the same thing. There are two things to note about Wickard v. Philbin uh, and the act that the court upheld. There was a referendum of wheat farmers that was conducted before the quotas were put in effect, and 81% of farmers voted for the quotas before enactment. Also, the quotas were necessary, the government argued, because it was providing a price for the wheat well above world market. The government can regulate what it subsidized, Jackson argued in his decision. With a conservative court protective of states' rights, conservative on federal expansion, it was possible that Filburn might have finally prevailed, that the case would have been overturned in this decision. Yet Chief Justice Roberts merely seemed to use it as a ruler to judge the possible use of Commerce Clause of the Constitution to justify an individual mandate, the requirement that every American purchase health insurance. At least Filburn was engaged in an activity, he said, which made the individual mandate of health care reform different and invalid. Even the dissenting concurring justices, even uh, three of the concurring dissenting judges, Scalia, Kennedy, Alito, merely refer to Filburn as the ne plus ultra of federal power. The ceiling by which they would go no further, and possibly if they were the original author of the decision, would have set a little lower. Only Justice Thomas, in his quick concurrence, notes that the idea of substantial effect on commerce as a test, is the regulated activity going to have a substantial effect, should be dropped, or else the federal government will keep pushing the limits like they did here. Thomas didn't exactly say he wanted to overturn Filburn or other cases, but strongly hinted his willingness to do so. With only one supporter, that isn't going to be settled law right now. Nor will Ginsburg's opinion, which concurs with Roberts on one point and dissents with Roberts on others, and is joined by Justices Sotomayor, Kagan, and Breyer on most points. But in one point, only Breyer joins her. Ginsburg says that Roberts, who in this phase of his holding is bolstered by Kennedy, Scalia, Thomas, and Alito, that the individual mandate cannot be justified under the Commerce Clause, writes an opinion that has no home in our laws. The weapon that she hurls at him is the result of a Georgia lumber company in the 1940s who paid its workers less than 25 cents per hour and had workers working more than 45 hours per week, and they didn't keep records. That was against federal law at the time, and in 1941, the Supreme Court ruled against the Darby Lumber Company and signaled a change in the interpretation of the Commerce Clause for good. Since lumber, made by a company not following federal rules, would enter the market and have effects on the companies who were trying to comply with the rules, it would be the dominion of the federal government to regulate interstate commerce to provide a beneficial living standard for its citizens. But okay, the Darby Lumber Company had done something. They could be regulated. So now Ginsburg attacks Robert's argument that inactivity cannot be regulated. What about Mongahela Navigation Company? They just did nothing with their land. And we, the Supreme Court, found an ability for the government in regulating them. Indeed. In 1884, Congress passed funds to improve the navigation of the Monongahela between West Virginia and Pennsylvania, including improvements to dams, to improve so that the river could be navigated by new, bigger ships. But if you are going to navigate a river, it has to be the same all across the line. So if there's one dam that doesn't up to snuff, it's not going to work, and there's no point in improving any dam. So, in this case, the government had allotted funds for Lock No. 8. But the problem was Lock No. 7 owned by Mongahila Navigation Company. Several attempts failed to get Mongahila Navigation Company to act, or at least sell the land. The Secretary of War appropriated the lock for Lock No. 8 and ordered the destruction of Lock No. 7. Mongahila Navigation Company sued. Judge Brewer at the time ruled that Congress had the power to do whatever it wanted. If lock number seven was an obstruction, then it could be taken away. Its dominion, the court said, of Congress here is supreme. The court did order compensation, though, and remanded it back to a lower court on the issue of how much Mongahela Navigation would get. The government just wanted to pay them for the property. Mongahela wanted money for the lost tolls, which Justice Brewer said was fair. So, Justice Ginberg says now... Mongahela couldn't leave a dam there, and Americans can't just go walking around without health insurance, when it would have effects on commerce later, as every individual inevitably will use health care, and where free riders who use health care have a benefit that everyone provides, the ability to use health care in emergency rooms, but are free from ever buying health insurance. They are driving costs up for everyone. Well, you need five votes to carry on on this issue that wasn't there. In 1888, C.W. Mott wanted to insure his ship, the Alliance, and told his firm, Johnson & Higgins, a brokerage firm in New York, to secure that price. Mott was in San Francisco, and so he used Johnson & Higgins' office in San Francisco, where a man named Hooper was the agent at the office. And as a good salesperson, he found the price that his customer, Mott, demanded. Except, to do it, Hooper used a New York insurance company with no California license who had not paid a bond to the state of California to operate there. The state of California found out about this. They fined Mott, and they prosecuted Hooper, who appealed saying it was in violation of Article 1, Section 8 of the Constitution. It was an international business. California could not, Hooper contended, regulate our maritime trade. Not so, said Justice Edward White, not at this time the Chief Justice. Insurance is not maritime commerce, and any state has a right to set rules for what companies can do inside their state borders. In this case, California requires a bond. Despite a strongly worded dissent from Judge Harlan that Americans have a right to do business with anyone, anywhere, Hooper still had to pay the $5 fine or face 24 hours in the pokey. If this were the limits, the case we discussed would have no relevance to healthcare care reform. But Justice White deals with one more angle to this case. Hooper's lawyers, and here I may guess they earned more than their $5, argued that the way California's law was written it shall be a misdemeanor every person who agrees to procure for a resident of the state the act punished is procuring for a resident well Hooper did this no dispute Hooper procured for a resident but Hooper's in California so Hooper's lawyers argued the contract was indeed procured by Hooper Jonathan Higgins has a license in California. Hooper has a license in California. Mott's a resident of California. The deal was between Hooper and Mott, both in California. China Mutual Insurance of Boston wasn't there. They couldn't procure the insurance. Ingenious, said Edward White, but a fallacy. And the problem with it is simple. The court must make every reasonable construction reasonable construction resorted to in order to save a statute from unconstitutionality. This goes back to Parsons v. Bedford. A defendant who lost an equity suit complained that the court didn't order the clerks to write down testimony from a witness so that an appellate court could examine it. See, an act in Congress in 1824 said U.S. courts needed to follow the rules of the states they were in. Well, this particular court was in Louisiana. The practice in Louisiana was that you wrote down testimony of witnesses. These are things that would occur now, but we're going back to 1824. So The court refused to write down testimony, and the defendant therefore asked for a new trial. Citing this act, you were supposed to follow the rules that Congress put down, which were the rules of the state you're in. And in Justice Story's opinion, he argued that no court ought, unless it is unavoidable, give a construction to the act which should, however unintentional, involve a violation of the Constitution. Therefore, he had to rule that the Act of 1824 merely instructs lower courts how to act. It cannot be seen that Congress was writing a law in order to provide a way that people like Parsons could get a new trial. A related finding occurred when a longshoreman was injured in the 1930s. Such injury was, at this time, handled by the Longshoreman's and Harbor Waters Compensation Act as a federal solution if the state that the injury occurred in, if their workers comp didn't provide adequate compensation. Deputy Commissioner Crowell ruled the worker, Nudson should get support. Now that support, at least partially, is going to come from the employer. The employer said, where's my Fifth Amendment due process here? I never went to a court. Now I have some agency telling me I own a fine and there's been no finding of fact here. In fact, I'm going to argue that Nudson wasn't even really my employee. He didn't belong there. And he brought this to the Supreme Court of the United States. Chief Justice Charles Evans Hughes, Republican candidate of 1916, and now in 1931, a Chief Justice of the United States, he held that an administrative unit could handle claims under a specific act though courts could still review in the end. And he added during that decision, when the validity of an act of Congress is drawn into question, even when a serious doubt is raised, it is a cardinal principle that the court will first ascertain whether a construction is fairly possible by which the question may be avoided. The same consideration was given in the case of a Mr. Blodgett, who had given a gift of $850,000 in land and other items in 1924, not knowing that in the same year, Congress would pass a new tax on gifts, and he would be charged a $52,000 tax that year because he made the gift. The court reversed that gift for a lot of different reasons, mostly because it was retroactive. Oliver Wendell Holmes, though, in his decision said the court should strike down the bad part of the tax. That is the retroactive component. You can't tax items from 1924 when the people making those choices didn't even know they were going to be taxed. But you can hold it for future taxes. They should give Mr. Blodgett back his money, but at the same time, they should hold the law. They should read the law as applying, just fine, to future gifts, where people would have had time to educate themselves about the law before engaging in actions. Oliver Wendell Holmes said clearly, In choosing between two meanings, our plain duty is to adopt the meaning which would save the act. All of this jurisprudence reflects that basic rule of the Supreme Court and was cited by Chief Justice Roberts in his decision. His role, he said, like Holmes, is to accept constitutionality if he can. In a finding where he might do that, another series of cases come up. U.S. v. Constantine, a restaurant owner, was serving his customers along with a food a little something else. Malt liquor and more than 1.5% alcohol. Not shopping, except that this was right at the time of prohibition. And as prohibition ended, that federal commission wished to continue charging some fees, this time calling it a tax and not a penalty anymore. The Supreme Court in U.S. v. Constantine said it's a tax. We disregard the label of the exaction in the law and view it by its substance and application. A fine for serving stronger liquor than allowed is a penalty even if the law calls it a tax. This brings us to our 11-year-old boy working in a furniture factory in North Carolina. The year is 1919, and a new law recently passed by Congress allowed the IRS to seek a tax from businesses who employ children more than a set amount of hours. It was called a tax, collected by the IRS, and only assessed, not to all businesses, but just businesses who employ children and sell their products interstate from chief justice taft there is no relief for the child but there is for the furniture factory this is a penalty he said clearly it's not a tax and as such it is unfair to use the federal government's power and then call it a tax to try to get around and in the child labor case the tax was thrown out chief justice roberts cites the decision of his predecessor. He looks at all of these cases and sees the court's role in testing a tax or penalty as functional. What does it do? I've got a mandate, he said earlier, to pick the interpretation that is the most constitutional if possible. We've used a functional approach in cases in the past, especially in determining a penalty or tax. So in reviewing this individual mandate, he believes it need not be read as more than a tax the mandate is quote not a legal command to buy insurance roberts says guy without insurance is just another one that the government taxes a couple of individual points that he makes to sort of bolster this argument the irs collects the fee the payment is not so high that there really is no choice but to buy insurance the payment is not limited to willful violations There is no punishment other than the tax. There's no jail time prescribed, nothing else. Given Crowley Benson's fairly possible use standard cited by Oliver Wendell Holmes, it is fairly possible to read it as a tax. Here he gets no arguments from the liberals concurring and dissenting, from the opinion of Justice Ginsburg. Chief Justice Roberts calls the individual mandate a tax. I concur, Ginsburg says, but there's still a little bite which makes me wonder why the Essay on the Commerce Clause is necessary. The other dissent-slash-concurrence, the conservatives, are not convinced, however. They agree on the Oliver Wendell Holmes Justice Story standard. Yes, we must pick the most constitutional interpretation, where there are two. But we cannot, he says, revise the statute by interpretation. The law is never called a tax, always called a penalty by the people who write it. It is applied because... The law is clear. Every American shall buy health insurance. Shall is a command. If you do not buy it, it is unlawful. In this part, the conservatives are dissenting on, they also cite the same case, the child labor case. Chief Justice Taft made it clear. If it looks like a penalty, then that's what it is. While it may be the case that the court has used functional approaches, you know, looking at what does it do, and called taxes clearly A penalty in disguise. We've never done the reverse with Chief Justice Roberts is doing here now. Calling what is labeled as a penalty a tax. We've never held that, the dissent says. This summarizes kind of the action on the court. And now we look at the how and the why and what happens from here. The Supreme Court is a black box. An institution that can keep a secret from April to June (laughs) has to be. There's rumors that maybe opinions were shifted on this. Kennedy might have been one way. Roberts might have been one way. And everyone, including Kennedy, trying to bring him into the conservative fold. We don't know. We probably won't know till a long time. Some clerks talk, but they're loyal and they wait a long time to talk. The prestige of being a SCOTUS law clerk outweighs the thrill of giving the skinny to a reporter now. I think first we have to place the Supreme Court decision in the context of history. And remember, that something I've said before on this cast, unconstitutionality is rare, actually. Only 165 acts from Marbury v. Madison to the 2005 decision on military tribunals during uh, the Bush administration held unconstitutional by the Supreme Court. Since this is really a decision that in its entirety pleased no one else on the court, only its author, we should look at the role of John Roberts as chief justice, who managed to straddle the line and stay with five votes in each part of his decision, albeit from different justices. In justifying the Commerce Clause, he rejected that with Kennedy, Scalia, Alito, and Thomas. With the belief that health care reform is justified as a tax, he is Ginsburg, Breyer, Sotomayor, and Kagan with the belief that the Medicaid proposal of the act is unconstitutional as a heavy coercion on the states. Comply with our rules or else we cut the funds that your state's residents expect. He gets the expected, Kennedy, Scalia, Alito, and Thomas supporting him, but he also gains, and this is a not-so-noticed part of the decision, he gains Sotomayor and Kagan on that point. In all portions of what he says, he, the chief, guides the court through the treacherous waves of fractured judgment and keeps five or more at all times the alternative which roberts has expressed he doesn't like in the past would be a fractured judgment you know that you'd have to read parts of the cases for lower courts to know what they do no no one author has five votes on everything and you've got to put together parts of the decisions he felt that fractured law was the bane of the court's existence all of this leads to a question should his role as more than just one of the nine Be considered here. Did he rule this way because he's chief justice? Should a chief justice be doing things like that? The Constitution prescribes the chief justice only in one place. Article 1, Section 3 indicates that the chief justice shall preside when the president is tried for impeachment. Yet that is a reference that assumes a chief justice exists already. Nothing is said about the chief justice in a specific role in Article 3, which describes the federal judiciary. The Chief Justice also gives the oath of office to the President, which speaks volumes about his role. This came out of tradition, since there was no Chief Justice technically at all on the first inauguration. The President had appointed one yet. Robert Livingstone, the Chancellor of New York State's highest court, gave Washington the oath. And in his second... John Jay wasn't present, and so one of the other Supreme Court justices, William Cushing, gave Washington the oath, as he happened to be present in the Senate chamber. By 1797, Adams was sworn in by Oliver Ellsworth, the Chief Justice of the Supreme Court, and yes, in 1800, John Marshall, kind of a rival there, was able to look Jefferson in the face and administer his oath. Precedent set, and symbolically, if you are swearing in the president, and if you are the person who would preside over his potential removal and make sure it's fair, we could assume it's quite an elevated position. Oliver Ellsworth, who would wear the robe, as we mentioned, would as a member of the Constitutional Convention creating the government, suggest something different than the Supreme Court in terms of deciding if acts of Congress were constitutional. He urged a council to assist the president, But he said during the convention, this should include the chief justice, again, assuming that a chief justice would exist. Governor Morris suggested that the chief justice be a successor to the president before they formalized the role of the vice president. The convention rejected both of these proposals, but gave the chief justice the impeachment duty and didn't mention the justice elsewhere. The one thing that was true is everyone assumed that there would be a chief justice. So the chief justice power, that comes from that constitutional reference strong symbolism prestige and the supreme court's own rules and customs the chief presides over discussion in the chamber he signs the decisions who's going to write the decision which can be used to narrow a decision or to make a decision more forceful he speaks for the court on non-judicial matters you know applies for the budget from congress applies for improvements to buildings and And this is not commonly known. He is the head judicial administrator of the federal court system, though a special counselor actually runs the details. Since Salmon P. Chase asked the Congress to change the title, he is the Chief Justice of the United States, not simply the Chief Justice of the Supreme Court, running the judiciary. If this is not enough, he runs the Smithsonian, though obviously there are people who tend to these details. All of this kind of adds up, and you can say the 17 people holding this title over our history, not that many, there are a couple of really long terms, Marshall, Taney, are more than any one associate justice. They have special responsibilities. Yet in decision-making, and an actual case, obviously none of this should impact cases, but as an Atlantic Monthly interview with Roberts uh, did note, he was frustrated with his first year. Roberts had said, if the court in John Marshall's era had issued decisions in important cases in the way we did over 30 years, we would not have a Supreme Court today that would have the sort of prestige that Marshall created. I think every justice, Roberts says, should be concerned about the court acting like a court and functioning as a court. He also said, I think it's bad with all the media focus on who voted with who and on how individuals vote. An egocentric analysis, he called it. So did Chief Justice attempt to break this tradition with his decision? Did he mold his opinion on the legal manners to enhance the image of the court? But if he was on the edge of thinking on a close call, the definition of a tax versus the function of attacks and had well-established court principle to back the notion that you needed to try to find constitutionality. Did that edge it along with some of the considerations of the image of the court? Another 5-4 with the same people within the 5-4? The human mind is not easily known, and I don't suspect Robert talks about it anytime soon, so probably we shouldn't try to enter the black box and, and think about it when you hit a closed door you should back off. But we never quite do that, do we? And so I would speculate this much. It's probably more possible than not that his role as chief justice played some role in the decision. The Supreme Court only has so much prestige. There's one guy who really is there to look out for that prestige. It's not an unlimited supply. It will affect the court's power to do things in the future. I don't believe any political ramifications came up in Justice Roberts' decision. I mean, there's been some statements about that out there, but they're there and they should be discussed. The last time a court took on a signature act of a president in an election year, that would have been 1936, when the Agricultural Act and several other New Deal bills were struck down. The President Obama called for an immediate hearing on the circuit court's cases uh, through the request of the Solicitor General was an indication he didn't think the risk was great, or perhaps that should have the court had ruled against him or ruled for him, as an elected official it would work out for him if there was a battle with the court, he could point to the court and say, that's why my, I can't get anything done. Certainly what FDR did. Had the court struck down the individual mandate and thus stopped the health care bill from truly functioning, I think that would have been a loss for President Obama. I don't mean that the election loss, but I mean it would have been one of the things stacked against him. Therefore this development is a gain or at least an avoidal of a loss for his presidential reelection prospects. May not have been a fatal loss, of course. Clinton managed to eke through his reelection even though the defeat, in this case from a legislative standpoint of his major health care reform initiative. Roosevelt was able to use the loss of several New Deal programs to call for his reelection. But other presidents, Taft, Carter, Hoover, Ford, were sunk because, in part, their failure to affect change, to affect events in Washington as president. The opposite argument, of course, would be that it hurts Obama, this decision, by stoking opposition, increasing turnout and thus helping the president because now there is a big issue to go out and vote against him for. Supporting this, Pew had in June about 60% of Republicans thinking the election was dull. A little bit more than Democrats. I don't think that's true anymore, although they haven't done the poll since the decision. Most presidential elections, though, are referendums on presidential performance, how the president functioned, and not necessarily ideology. The ideology is going to be what drives either Republicans or Democrats, but as we know, it's particularly in a presidential election where turnout goes up, it's those independent voters that decide things, and voters leaning one way or the other that decide things. Presidents Clinton, Truman, George W. Bush, Woodrow Wilson were reelected with a high degree of partisan activity out there. Turnout's usually high in presidential elections, high 50s, maybe for a re-elect it'll be slightly lower. Clinton only got about a little less than 50% for turnout for his re-election, but always higher than midterms, where you're going to see turnout in the 30s. I don't think any of these politics entered Roberts' decision, or at least those kind of politics, but for the image of the court, that might have been a factor, or it could just simply be in this case, that's the way he read it, as a tax. And it might signal that he's not willing to join that straight textual reading that some of his colleagues have, particularly Scalia. But if it was a way to bolster the court for future cases, was it for a specific reason? Perhaps to strengthen his own decision on the Commerce Clause that could be used later. And now this decision would be spotlighted, right? Could be used as precedent. Is it the, quote, Trojan horse seemingly siding with liberals to undermine liberal decisions in the future? I think there's not enough there in the decision to see it that way, although some commentators have suggested that. Of course, he destroys the government's case in the Commerce Clause, asserts that inactivity cannot be commerce. He knocks down the argument uh, that insurance and health care usage is connected tightly. They are related, but are not the same thing. He says to follow the government's logic is to rule that the government can compel individuals to do anything it wants using the Commerce Clause. And this court case will now be precedent against any such usage. He doesn't overturn Darby or Wickard, but he does set them as clear ceilings. He does editorialize that Congress already enjoys vast power to regulate what we do. He knocked down the government's case to use Gonzalez v. Reich, the, uh, marijuana regulation case, to expand power beyond that case. We allowed that, he said, because if we didn't allow regulation of marijuana intrastate, they'd make it in one state, and it was so easy to transport to others, it would end up affecting interstate commerce. Marijuana, he said, was easily fungible. His attack on the government's case was so thorough that many commentators initially thought the court ruled against the president's health care plan, and there were some early headlines showing that. Indeed, Roberts spent about 10 more pages attacking the individual mandate than defending it. Another interpretation may be that Justice Roberts has forced the government to use the taxing power if they want to initiate something like a health care reform bill, which, as we know, taxing power is a little bit harder to pass. He also manages to affirm states' rights in this decision by knocking down the Medicaid provision as overly coercive. He runs far short of knocking down the key federalist case, South Dakota v. Dole. That case affirmed Congress's right to compel state to adopt a drinking age if they wanted to get highway money. In that case, he said, we were talking about funds that were 5% of South Dakota's highway budget. Sure, the federal government can use grants like that as a lever, but this is much larger. The president and the Congress were attempting to tell states that if they didn't comply with the new rules, they would lose their existing Medicaid funds. Wherever the line may be as to what's right or not right in the coercion of the federal government through grants, Robert says this statute is beyond that line. Indeed, at least one conservative legal scholar, Georgetown's Randy Barnett, said... We won in this case. Lawyers have used uh, language like Roberts was using in his case and haven't been able to get it into settled law, and now it is. It is certainly true that Roberts has built a moat against any proposal of a future law uh, justified by the Commerce Clause of the size of healthcare reform. In preserving the mandate is only a tax, and by using the reasonableness of that tax, right, it's less than any insurance policy. In 2016, it's $200 per month on an income of $100,000. In using that justification and assessing it not as a penalty but as a tax, Robert may also have done the favor in the future of hemming in any future draconian enforcement under a more eager president and Congress, if that happens, Any ability of Congress to increase the tax to quite a high level. An easy way to say what I think his decision does is he may have set a wall that could be used 20, 25 years from now, but you'd have to scratch your head to see any case that's going to apply to the precedents today. It may well be that an additional thing that no one is considering comes out of this decision. It's often the case, and I see it quite often, Some people engage in political discussion thinking of nothing else but conspiracy and cabal. Everything is fixed. It's the corporations or it's the special interest groups. Everything is fixed. We know what's going to happen. Anything that occurs in a room in Washington must be rigged. The court majority appointments by Republican presidencies, yet made a ruling in favor, at least in part, of President Obama's plan. Maybe this decision can do a little bit to mix up that straight cabal and conspiracy thinking that I think is just not useful for most people viewing politics. And we shouldn't forget, it's only a legal decision and does not stop the legislature or a future president from acting to either fix it, repeal it, or expand it. All the court has done is put the ball back in the legislature's court. I want to thank you for listening. Uh, The website is www.myhistorycanbeatupyourpolitics.com. We do have the archive available. It's currently $14.99. The price might not stay that forever. Want a note about Stitcher Radio. Uh, Moving up on the Stitcher Radio and the Society and Culture Top 100 there. so. So if you do have a mobile device, you may want to get the Stitcher app and listen to My History Can Beat Up Your Politics through Stitcher. Thanks for listening.